What's up, guys? Welcome to Fed It. Today, we're going to talk about Whitey Bulger and the Winter Hill Gang, man. This is going to be one of my favorite episodes. Let's break it down. I was a special agent with Homeland Security Investigations, okay, guys? HSI. The cases that I did mostly were human smuggling and drug trafficking. No one else has these documents, by the way. Here's what Fed It covers. Dr. Lafredo confirmed lacerations due to stepping on glass. Murder investigation. See him reaching in his jacket. You don't know. And he's positioning. Been on February 13, 2019. You're facing two counts of premeditated murder. Racketeering and Rico conspiracy. Young, young slime life here and after referred to as YSL. The defendants is, uh, six nine. And then this is Billy Seiko right here. Now, when they first started, guys, six nine ran. I'm a fed. I'm watching this music video. You know, I'm bobbing my head like, hey, this shit lit. But at the same time, I'm pausing. Oh wait, who this? Right? Oh, who's that in the back? Firearms and violent crimes, aka Pushaisi violated. You're ordered to stay away from the victim. Rapper Pushaisi arrested after shooting at King of Diamonds, Miami Strip Club, injured one this person. Is the, this is the one that that's gonna fuck him up because this gun is not traceable. Well, it happened at the gun range. Here's your boy, 42 Doug, right here on the left. Okay. Sex trafficking and sex crimes. They can effectively link him to paying an underage girl. I'm gonna invoke my fifth amendment right, right. And well, the first bomb went off right here. Suspect to set down a backpack at the site of the second explosion. Inspired by Al Qaeda. Two terrorists, brothers, the Zokar Sarnev and Tamer Lin Sarnev. When the cartel shipped drugs into the country. As this guy got arrested for um, espionage, okay, trading secrets with the Russians for monetary compensation. The largest corrupt police bust in New Orleans history. The days of the police are gone. So he was in this bad boy. We're going to go over his past, the gang ties, so that this all makes sense. All right, and we're back. What's up, guys? Welcome to Feta. Today, we're going to talk about the Whitey Bulger and Winter Hill gang case, guys. Um, not going to lie to you guys, it's going to be one of my favorite ones because I spent a considerable amount of time in Boston. I went to college there. Just to give you guys a quick little background. Let's go down memory lane. <laughs> so as you guys know, I'm originally from Connecticut. I'm from New England, and I was uh, went to college at Northeast University in Boston. Now, um, when I was there, I was an intern for Homeland Security Investigation. That's where actually I got my start as an intern for the federal government. And um, it was out, out of um, the government building was uh, the tip building down there at 10 Causeway Street, right next to TD Garden in uh, North Boston. And, um, or what, yeah, they call it North, North Boston, right? Or they call it North, North End. North, the North End, excuse me. Yeah, North, yeah, the North End. <laughs> That's so stupid. It's been a while. Um, and I was in, I was living in Boston, guys, from 2009 all the way up to 2013. So I spent a considerable amount of time there it was a lot of fun, one of my favorite cities. And, um, you know, you're not from Boston if you don't know who Whitey Bulger is, man. Uh, infamous crime boss for the Winter Hill Gang. Um, he was, you know, <laughs> it, we're, and we're going to go over his story, but um, but it was it was great. You know, uh, his backstory, you know, obviously the guy was involved in a bunch of murders. He was an informer for the FBI. Uh, but he did things very intelligently where he was giving information on his um, on his counterparts, which is actually genius when you look at it and was able to evade um, arrest and detection for his own criminal activity, which we're going to get into in more detail here. Um, but yeah, man, this is going to be awesome. Um, I, I this one of my he's one of my favorites. Um, crime stories to cover it's going to be one of my favorite ones so uh you know especially since i have such a strong tie to the city of boston but um i got christina with me here she's from boston so yeah. what do you what do you got to say about this well introduce yourself to the people real quick and then what are your, what are your thoughts here oh, christina um 
I mean, it's just huge in Boston. I mean, like, it's just well known. If you don't know who he is, then it's just you don't live there. Yeah. It makes no sense. Like, he van, like, South End. Yeah. So. Folk legend. Yeah. I mean, he's, like, he's Irish. Like, he's, like, the main main guy. Yep. Yep. So, yeah, he wasn't a typical Italian mobster, man. He was Irish, guys. So, um, and we're going to talk about, you know, his rise, you know, getting, you know, being on the run for damn near 20 years, how he made the FBI's top most wanted list. He was number two next to Osama bin Laden, which is crazy. Um, and, you know, how he was captured and eventually how he died. So we're going to go ahead. And actually, um, they just found the people that were responsible for killing him. They just indicted them a couple of days ago, actually. Um, so we're going to go ahead um, and break it all down for you. all So I got a documentary to react to. So let me go ahead and start moving some stuff around on my end, guys. And we're going to go ahead and start breaking down a documentary. And I also have a bunch of articles. I have uh, the movie Black Mass, which featured Johnny Depp. Uh, we're going to play scenes from that as well. So this is going to be a really good, uh, cool breakdown for y'all. So, um, yeah, sit back, get your popcorn ready, and uh, let's go ahead and start uh, breaking this bad boy down. So, um, and guys, before I do this, by the way, do me a quick favor. Like the video, man, because this one took a lot of time to prepare for. Uh, we're going to be reacting to this documentary called Bullets Over Boston. came out in 2008, and we're going to be using other clips and excerpts and documents as well to um to uh go over this investigation because this was a very big uh situation it went from you know his rise you know as early as you know he was in alcatraz all the way to um his death so we're going to cover decades here of the whitey bulger situation um but yeah like the video guys subscribe to the channel and uh let's get into it boston the 1980s Irish-American mobster James Whitey Bulger fights his way to the top of the city's rackets with a savagery that shocks even his lieutenants. This is for real. People really do get killed, and I'm part of it now. Whitey Bulger is untouchable. The cops seem powerless. This guy would put a bullet in your head without any remorse at all. For 20 years, Whitey Bulger is secretly protected by rogue FBI agents. If there were enforcers are the lawbreakers, then the whole system fails. In a barrage of bullets and blood, James Whitey Bulger's Irish mob weaves a web of corruption, double cross, and murder that rocks Boston to its core. Boston, Massachusetts. May 11th, 1982, early evening. In a waterfront bar, Brian Halloran, a small-time hood, is having dinner with an associate. Brian Halloran, guys, was a member of the Winter Hill Gang working alongside Whitey Bulger. Familiar with the city's Irish-American mobsters, he's being watched, but not by the cops. A young man named Kevin Weeks keeps Halloran under surveillance. Real quick, you guys are probably wondering who the hell is Kevin Weeks. Guys, Kevin Weeks, this is him right here. Uh, born March 21st, 1956, an American former mobster and longtime friend and mob lieutenant for Whitey Bulger, the infamous boss of the Winter Hill Gang, a crime family based in the Winter Hill neighborhood in Somerville, Massachusetts. After his arrest and imprisonment in 1999, he became a cooperating witness. Um, and, you know, obviously uh, it talks about him pleading. But he was one of uh, Whitey Bulger's trusted associates, okay? Um, and let me see here. And this is him, a, a photo of him right here, Whitey Bulger from back in the day. There he is right there with the Yale 
um, sweater, and there's Bolger right there. So let's go back. I was in the lookout car. I called the hit in. Halloran and Weeks both work for Irish-American gangster James Whitey Bulger. We were looking for uh, Brian Helm for a while. He was cooperating with the FBI, I believe, on a couple of murders, saying that uh, Jim Bulger committed them. Ratting to the so obviously providing information to the government is going to put a target on your back, and you don't want someone like Whitey Bulger putting a target on your back. And you guys are going to see here in a second. Cops is unforgivable. Bulger plans to make an example of Halloran. Basically, what he was sending the message is, if you're going to uh, cooperate against me, I'm going to kill you. Weeks is equipped with binoculars and a CB radio. I picked up the walkie-talkie, and I let him know that he was coming out. I knew that somewhere down the line, there would be violence, you know, more than beating people up and stuff. But when that comes, you're never totally prepared for it. Bulger and the trigger man screech into the lot. Jim Bulger shot him with a 30 caliber carbine and with the machine gun from the backseat. The driver was dead instantly. Panic-stricken witnesses dive for cover. Kevin Weeks looks on as Brian Halloran staggers out of the car. Brian Halloran was still alive. He got out and started walking backwards. Jim Bulger just took the rifle and started pumping bullets into him. For Weeks, the Halloran murder is a rite of passage. It makes him a full-fledged member of Whitey Bulger's inner circle. At that now, I go. I got the scene here for you guys from the actual movie, okay? Which I think it was, uh, yeah, one hundred and one. See, guys, I was, I've been, I've been studying, man, and I've been prepared. So here's the actual scene from the movie for y'all, and we'll go ahead and play this. Oh, are they not playing it? Is it black screen? Uh-uh. Hold on. See it like. Seen it. Oh man, I think you know what it might be because I'm on YouTube movies. They might not allow uh, allow this. Let me try refreshing the page. Bear with me here, guys. Sorry, I don't know why. Okay, so here's Black Mass. Okay, the preview. Oh, I'm on the wrong channel. No wonder. My bad. We're gonna switch over to Fed it because I actually bought this on my other channel. Sorry about that, guys. I was gonna say like. Yeah, I was gonna say. Okay, let me refresh this for y'all real fast. Bear with me here, guys. This was actually a movie from 2015, guys, on um, Whitey Bulger and the Winter Hill Gang. Let's see here. You know, he didn't like Johnny Depp's acting. He didn't? No. What, what did he say? I, like, read something like, he just didn't like, he just, it didn't, like, he, it didn't fit him. Mm. He didn't like how he did. Oh, are they not letting you show? Because I'm looking here on the share screen and it's not playing. Why don't you? Because you can't see it, right? Oh, man. Do you want to do this? Do Bummer. To... Wait, wait, hold on. Why don't we try the website I gave you? All right. So let's go ahead and keep playing the documentary then. Wait, I'm going to find it. At that point, I realized my life had changed. Damn, I was trying to show you all the, the scene from the movie when he actually um, shoots him up. You know wait. what? I might be able to find it on YouTube. Wait, Let me see here. what's the timestamp for that one? What was that? What's the timestamp? Uh, it was at 101. Because I want to see if they have it here. Here, so. Black. Mass. Halloran scene. They might have it here. Okay, now they're playing it. Okay, we're good. We'll just play it from here. I found it. Oh, I 
Halloran is the, is in the passenger seat, by the way, guys. The actor is on the passenger seat playing Halloran. So they obviously switched it around a little bit for more dramatic effect, right? Because, you know, you can see Kevin Weeks said, hey, you just shot him with a rifle the whole time, uh, which is somewhat accurate here. And then he gets out the car. But they had a little bit more dramatic effect with this situation here. Just walks off into the sunset like nothing. Hey, nothing to see here. That there was no going back. So I decided, well, if I'm gonna be a criminal, I'm gonna be the best criminal I can. In the 1980s, Boston is no stranger to gangland slaying. For decades, rival mobs control the city's rackets. The main Irish gangs are in Somerville and Charlestown. The Italian mafia dominates the old North End district. But Whitey Bulger gets his start in the lowest reaches of the city's underworld, far to the south. South Boston, an area locally known as Southie, is a cramped grid dominated by three Depression-era housing projects. Southie's going through some serious gentrification now, though, guys. Um, it's, it's a lot nicer than it used to be. Um, it's so different. When I was, yeah, when I was going to college, um, Southie, a bunch of, like, um, students, like college students from Northeastern, BU, etc., they lived in Southie because it was much cheaper to live there than to live in, like, the main downtown area where BU and NU are located. So Southie is a lot cheaper. The projects um, are even taken down, too. They turn into, like, how, like houses. Like townhouses. Oh, they, they took them down? It's, like, townhouse. Like, some of them are still there, but some of them, they're turning to townhouses, which mm. is still government assistance. Still gotcha. projects. It's just looking nicer. A lot nicer? Okay. Yeah, yeah Southie is a lot nicer now, guys. It's not as bad as, uh, obviously, here in the 70s. 40% of Boston's population is of Irish heritage. The city was the first in America to hold an annual St. Patrick's Day parade. In Southie, Boston's Irish Catholic heart beats strong. South Boston was predominantly a, uh, an Irish ghetto, and it was just a very uh, insular area. Nobody ever uh, ever went over into South Boston unless they were from South Boston. Southie is a poor neighborhood, but some managed to prosper. During the 1960s, Bulger's brother Billy is an ambitious local Democrat. By the 80s, He's the state Senate president with political links that reach as far as Washington, D.C. Yet Billy still lives in South Boston, staying close to his roots and close to his criminal brother. And here he is real quick, guys. Uh, William Bulger right here. William Michael Bulger, born February 2nd, uh, 1934, is an American former Democratic politician, lawyer, and educator um, from South Boston, Massachusetts. 
Um, his 18-year tenure as president of Massachusetts, Massachusetts Senate is the longest in history. He then became president of the University of Massachusetts. Bolger came from the Old Harbor Village Housing Development, now more commonly known as the Mary Ellen McCormick Housing Development. He graduated from Boston High School, Boston College High School in 1952, from then Boston College in Classics, and then from Boston College Law School. Despite his brother's infamy as a convicted mob boss, James Whitey Bolger, who led the Winter Hill Gang, investigators have never uncovered any evidence that the two brothers colluded in 2003, testified in a congressional hearing about communications he had with his then-fugitive brother. Uh, due to negative publicity, he was forced to resign from the presidency of the University of Massachusetts. Bolger went on to teach as a visiting scholar at Suffolk University, but has since removed himself from public life, man. So, yeah, this is someone who had some political aspirations that were pretty much destroyed from his brother being a crime mob boss, man. So kind of sucks for him, but that's what happens sometimes. The Bulger brothers live in a world where people aspire to a simple code. Look after your own. Stand up for yourself. Disputes are settled by the fist. Men are expected to fight. It wasn't a matter of the fact that you had to win every fight, but you did have to show up. Yeah, they didn't sit there and talk shit about each other on the Internet, guys. <laughs> they went and found them and punched them. In this tough environment, Whitey Bulger stands out as tougher than most. He served a seven-year stretch in Alcatraz for armed robbery. But he's a and Alcatraz, guys, is a prison out there, uh, just outside of San Francisco. I think it's closed down now. It's a museum, but uh, back then it was a very tough prison to be in. Man, one of the pl worst places you can be. Though they said that the food was good there. He said he loved it. <laughs> what really? Yeah, like he like loved it. Oh, okay. what? what do you, why did he li like it? I have no clue. I just he just said that he like loved it. That was like his favorite. Okay. Go back. Well, I know this. Him going to Alcatraz though made him realize like he's. I'm never going back to prison. I know he said that. And I've 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 been told. Uh, I did some research somewhere that where they were saying like the only thing about Alcatraz that was good was apparently the food was good there. <laughs> so but okay. Weird. Big fish in a small pond. During the '60s, the Southie area is barely on the radar of the mafia and the main Irish gangs in Somerville and Charlestown. In the North End, the Mafia dominates the city's organized crime. From here, Mafia underboss Jerry Angelo and his consigliere Larry Zanino take a cut from the scam. And it was a federal prison, by the way, guys, Alcatraz. And he went for bank robbery. As you guys know, bank robbery, we've broken them down on this channel many times, is a, fe uh, a federal crime. Okay? Um, so anytime you rob a bank, it's FDIC insured, FBI is going to show up. ...run by other gangs. Crime in Southie is small time. But even... So the mafia ran everything, guys, in the 70s, okay? Basically, everybody was paying money back to the mafia to be able to run their illegal activities. Here, gangsters still have to pay a street tax to the mafia. Competing street gangs run nickel and dime gaming and protection rackets. Whitey Bulger is an enforcer and debt collector for one of them. But Bulger's gang has rivals. Seen here in a rare and battered old photograph, a cocky young group of robbers. Among them, Pat Knee. We were thieves. We like to steal and we like to party. And we might make enough money on one score to last two or three months. But while we were out partying, we'd always be looking for the next, for the next one. Knee's gang operates in the South Boston docks in what is now known as the Conley Terminal. One of their specialties is raiding parked trucks full of the daily catch. A lot of money in doing fish and crab meat. A lot of money in items that are sold every day. Crab meat, man, stealing from the docks. <laughs> day. Goods that are consumed every day. That's what you would like to steal. 
One night in July 1969, Nee's men are celebrating a successful heist when a drunken brawl breaks out with some of Bulger's gang members. Alcohol always makes people do stupid shit, man. Can you imagine? What'd you say about my mother? I'm gonna fuck you up, asshole. <laughs> it's called the Fighting Irish for a reason. <laughs> By chance, both Nee and Bulger are in another bar nearby when they hear what's happening. The two, soon to be rivals, share a ride to the fight. And when we pulled up, me and Whitey just kind of looked at each other. I said, well, we, it's the last time we'll be talking on this level. See you later. He said, see you later. Then uh, the shooting started. The war lasts from 1969 to 70. So think about that. Over a drunken fight now, right, um, these two guys that were, you know, business associates essentially are <laughs> now they're enemies. You know, now, now they're enemies off of one fight. And now they're, you know, just shooting at each other, which is crazy. But uh, that's that's the world that we were in. That's the world that they were in back then. Okay, just do some readjusting on my side real quick, guys, and we'll go right back into it. But could you imagine one drunken fight leads to a fucking gang war? <sighs> Wild I mean, times. I feel like that's such a huge thing. Like, every time you go to the bar in Boston, <laughs> everybody's always fighting, no matter what. <laughs> uh. At first, it's Nee's gang who are on the receiving end, dodging Bulger's bullets in a deadly game of cat and mouse. But the war turns ugly when Nee's brother is murdered by a Bulger associate. When Peter got killed, I decided I could kill. And I started hunting. An ex-Marine with combat experience in Vietnam, Nee tracks his target with cold-blooded vengeance. One cold and wet night in November 1969, Nee finally confronts his brother's killer. I finally trapped him coming home. I creeped up the alleyway as he's parking. And then when he turned around, I said, well, it's your turn. And I opened up on him. Turns out I shot him over the heart, under the heart, blew out his right lung. Uh, I think I hit him twice in the stomach. I thought I hit him in the heart. And when he went down, I kicked his teeth out and I spit on him. Incredibly, Knee's target survives. But now Bulger knows that rival gangster Pat Knee is a dangerous opponent. As war is breaking out among Irish gangs in South Boston, to the north, another Irish gang war is ending. The Somerville district of Winter Hill plays host to Boston's biggest Irish mob. But this suburb is besieged by rival gangsters from neighboring Charlestown. At stake, lucrative bookmaking and extortion rackets. Okay, guys, bookmaking, guys, is illegal gambling, essentially, okay? And um, extortion is, you know, when you basically tell people, hey, you got to pay up for this protection or else. And you basically force them to pay you money or else they're going to feel some physical consequences. Howie Winter is the leader of the Winter Hill Gang from during the late 1960s. Okay, so real quick, with the Winter Hill Gang. This is the Winter Hill Gang right here, guys, okay? I went and got had this organizational chart for y'all. Okay, of the Winter Hill Gang from the 1970s, uh, mid 1975. So you can see here, here's Howie Winter. Okay, here's James Bulger. Here's Pat Nee over here. They're basically running a sports gambling business. And this is how a lot of these guys, right, were making money back then with the book making. And then here's St Stephen Fleming, who's a very close associate and friend of Whitey Bulger working together. 
And you guys can see, man, this is organized crime, my friends. This is I remember I used to have charts like this in my office as well for my cases when I had drug conspiracies, etc. And this allows you to map out, hey, this organization, this is what they do, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So back in the 70s, what they were doing, the Irish gang, was they were basically rigging um, horse bets, or horse racing, and they were like, you know, paying off jockeys, paying off, you know, fucking up with the fucking with the horses, everything else like that. So the horses would lose on purpose. So they were there was a lot of money involved in sports betting, guys. But this is obviously something that's illegal because it's illegal gambling. Um, but th they used to run these rackets all over the place back then. Your life wasn't worth much in those days, you know. I mean, most of us had a mindset that we were not going to survive too long. And that's how we, Howard Winter right there. As you guys can see, uh, here he is right here back then, right, from mid-'70s, and that's him a little bit more recently. This documentary is a little bit older. This documentary is from around 2008, so. You know. By the early 1970s, the war has cost over 40 lives from both gangs. Myself and a couple other guys were all that was left, really, you know. Most everybody else was deceased. As one of the few survivors, Winter claims the leadership of all Boston Irish gangs. But he's short of manpower. In 1972, Whitey Bulger offers to step into the breach and join forces with Winter. But first, he asks Winter to help him make peace with his rival, Pat Nee. With Howie Winter as benefactor, Nee and Bulger sit down together for the first time in two years. We met and uh, we didn't shake hands. We sat down at the same table and we started talking. We decided to end the hostilities between ourselves at that uh, point. Bulger proposes that he and me team up and split South Boston's rackets between them. They would pay Howie Winter a share of their take, and he in turn would pay the Mafia. So just so you guys know, the Mafia were running things back then, and the main guy that was doing this was this guy right here, Jerry Angiulo, okay? Um, Gennaro Joseph Jerry Angiulo Sr. Uh, was an American mobster who rose to the position of underboss in the Patriarca crime family of New England under Raymond L. S. Uh, Patriarca. Angiulo was convicted of racketeering in 1986 and was in prison until being released in 2007. One of the Angiulo brothers, he was probably the last very significant Mafia boss in Boston's history. So... Yeah, guys, they, they had a, a hard on it going after this guy. And John Connolly, the FBI agent that, you know, ended up arresting this guy, used Bolger as a primary informant to go ahead and build a case against the Angelos. OK, and they were able to basically um, figure out where they were doing their dirt and they were doing it right here on 98 Prince Street. OK, and the north end of Boston, as you guys can see, this is, uh, you know, tight streets. Um, and this is where most uh, where the Italians uh, of Boston, you know, reside. This, I mean, even to this day, it's still very heavily Italian. It's all Italian. Yeah. So um, from a from a historic sense, you know, very tight roads. This is Boston, by the way, guys. A bunch of one way roads. It's, it's like very, the worst very difficult ever. to yeah, very difficult to drive in this area. But um, but yeah, this is where they went ahead and found the headquarters, 98 Prince Street, right here, guys. And they went ahead and bugged this thing up, and they were able to take. Um, the Angelo family down. But we're going to talk about that in a little bit more detail later on. In the name of peace, Nee goes along with the plan. 
we took everything over. We went around to all the bookies, all the loan sharks, and said, you now work for us. Local boxing gyms supply Whitey Bulger with young new recruits. And Loan Sharks guys are basically individuals who lend money at an extremely high interest rate, damn near to a point where you won't be able to pay it back because they're incentivized to keep you in debt to them so that they can go ahead and collect high interest rates from you while the principal basically never gets paid down. Okay, so that's what loan sharking was. Expanding his operation. And his job is made unexpectedly easier. Think of hard money loans, but with, you know, with a physical consequence if you don't pay the debt. Violence suddenly erupts on the streets of South Boston. Boston, the mid-1970s. Fledgling kingpin James Whitey Bulger builds a criminal power base in South Boston. But then, a bombshell rocks the Southie community. In June 1974, a federal judge orders a forced integration of Boston schools. Black and white children are bused to different neighborhoods. It's a noble experiment in equality of opportunity. But in Southie, busing ignites hostility. You do not give the right of any minority by sacrificing the right of a majority. It was a matter of fact that, you know, you were born and brought up in South Boston. You had neighborhood schools that were two, three blocks away from you. I have to leave my school so they can come in. No, it's not happening. South Boston erupts in protest. For some, busing is a turning point into a life of crime. Kevin Weeks graduates from South Boston High just as busing begins. In September 1974, he takes a job as a security aide at his old school but soon gets sucked into the violence. You know, I was supposed to be breaking up the fights, but when there was a fight, I was right in the middle of it, you know, helping my friends. Weeks stands by his friends and ends up in court, charged with assault. Case is dismissed. But as he leaves court, Weeks is spotted by Billy O'Neill, a local bar owner. And that's uh, when my life took on a whole different uh, meaning. Kevin Weeks is soon working as a bouncer at O'Neill's bar, then called Triple O's. Legendary place where Whitey Bulger had a lot of his gang meetings, guys. And this is it today. This is Triple O Lounge today, guys, as you can see. They changed it, okay? Uh, now it's called uh, Fox Knife. Okay, as you guys can see, it says 30 there, but it used to be 28. It used to actually be, and I think this is for both addresses here. So you got 30 right here, and then this is 28. And this is on uh, West Broadway in uh, South Boston. Okay, and you know it's that this is it because this building here used to be red, but now it's, uh, you know, they colored it and everything else like that. But this is where the legendary uh, Triple O's used to be, guys. And you can actually tell from the photograph here. That's it right there. They switched it up, obviously, but there was a building on top of it. It's an establishment frequented by James Bulger. Jim Bulger took an interest in me because of all the fights I was having. And, uh, you know, police would come in and I always just, uh, you know, held my own with them. You know, kept my mouth shut and uh, took care of whatever business I had. During the mid-70s, 
Bulger begins using weeks as extra muscle in his shakedowns. And very interestingly enough, this is what they used uh, in the movie Black Mass in 1975. Uh, with with uh, and they actually, I think they went and did this. They shot this in Cambridge um, because you can tell. So here's Kevin Weeks, right? Standing guard in front of Triple O's. These guys show up. Sorry, buddy. I can't let you in. Yeah, it's cool, man. I'm friends with Jimmy. Really? Yeah. With Jimmy? Yeah. I still can't let you in. Who the fuck are you? My guy who works here. You probably don't remember this, but you were here last Saturday night. A few of your friends around 2 or 3 in the morning. You took a piss up against the bar. That's frowned upon here. (laughs) If you go down to Brannigan's, just right down there, they'll let you take a shit in the middle of the floor if that's what you want to do. But you can't you can't do it here. Alright. Yeah. Okay? Right, yeah, we'll go. Hey, look. No hard feelings, okay? Oh my god. <laughs> Fucking retired. Oh. <laughs> so Kevin was known for getting into fights. Dance. Come on. Step the fuck up. Bam. She knows he's over. There's Whitey in the bar. Here, let's fast forward. That's all I'm saying. I'm watching you. Putting your hold that is there. Just don't do it again. So they go outside to figure out. You can see there it is. They remade it. Uh, the triple O's. The Budweiser sign on the side. And like I said, they actually remade this situation in Cambridge, which is very interesting. But the original is in uh, South Boston, 28 West Broadway Street. But let's go back to the documentary. Together, they ruthlessly extort money from local bookmakers, all on behalf of Howie Winter, Boston's biggest Irish mobster. There was a bookmaker almost in every barroom. And guys, you got to remember with extortion, the way it works is when people are committing criminal activity, you can go ahead and collect the tax on that because they're committing criminal activity. It's not like they can go to the police and be like, hey, bro, they're extorting me uh, for doing illegal gambling. Well, you're going to get arrested for illegal gambling and selling drugs and all the other criminal stuff that you do. So it's easy for criminals to pick on other criminals and get them to pay them extortion fees because you can't go to the police. In those days, and they'd book the hosses during the daytime and they'd take the numbers and then at the nighttime, they'd, uh, they'd take the dogs. One shakedown tactic is to create a problem, then offer a solution. Creating a problem is very easy to do. You know, if someone owned a bar or something, you know, you'd have people going to smash up the bar. <laughs> you know, you go to people and afterwards and tell them, listen, uh, so-and-so was trying to kill you. They offered us 100000 to kill you. But if you, know, if you want, you can pay us and they won't bother you anymore. So ingenious. Go ahead and create a problem and then solve it. And I, I got a perfect example of this actually right here. This is a situation where Whitey Bulger and Kevin Weeks and Fleming, Stephen Fleming, a.k.a. the Rifleman Fleming, went ahead and um, extorted a liquor store. Out to get. In 1980, state police. Hold on. What was the timestamp on that one? It's um... oh, right here. Uh, probably right around 12 minutes, I think for new digs to run their bookmaking and loan sharking deal. Astro Street. 
Now the Winter Hill Gang was looking for new digs to run their bookmaking and loan sharking deals. They wanted a place with a legitimate business as their facade. They found the perfect place, an old gas station being renovated into a liquor store, no matter it belonged to someone else. Julie Dummers is only now talking about what happened to her and her then-husband Stephen Rakes almost 20 years ago. That's when the couple bought an old gas station and spent six months and $100,000 turning it into a family-run liquor store. Their store, Stippo's, had only been open for a week. Julie, pregnant with their third child, was alone at the store. Stephen was home with their two other young children when Woody Bulger, Stephen Fleming, and associate Kevin Weeks came knocking. Oh, shit. So these oh, two shit. guys oh, knocked on your home door. They came in, and what did they say to Stephen Weeks? They came into the kitchen and sat at the kitchen table and um, proposed a deal. The first deal was that he was going to be partners with us in the liquor store because apparently some people had come to Whitey um, to... Uh, uh, put together a contract to kill my husband because um, supposedly the liquor store was a bad thing. See, so there's a perfect example of what Kevin Weeks telling y'all, right? Like, hey, there would be a we would create a problem, come in, and then solve the problem that we created. So in this case, yo, someone gave us a contract to kill your husband for 100k. We're here to save you, right? Wink, wink. Uh, but now we're business partners, so we're gonna go ahead and take over this liquor shop as well. And. So Whitey came with a proposal to say that he'll be partners instead of um, killing him. So when my husband called me and said, we're going to have a partner, and I, of course, I'm safe and sound at the store, not knowing what was going on, was diligent, and we have no partners. Saying, no, we're not partners with anyone, especially not him. Why would we be partners with him? And he says, I'll call you back. When Stephen Rakes called Julie back that night, there was a new deal. Bolger, Flemmy, and Weeks were now the proprietors of Stippo's. Whitey handed Stephen Rakes $67,000 in cash. There was no negotiating. And did Bolger and Flemmy leave any doubt in your mind, in Stephen's mind, that if you didn't go along with the deal, what would it mean for you? When Whitey and Flemmy and Weeksy sat at my kitchen table, um, my youngest daughter was only 13 months at the time, teething, um, waddled, crawled over, and um, Whitey Bulger put her up on his lap and allowed my daughter to teeth on the barrel of a gun. And, of course, the conversation, oh, shit. Oh, shit. whatever was going on, stopped, and everyone observed that, and Whitey just went, huh, be too bad you won't see her grow up. So the picture was really clear that we would die, my children would die, there was gonna be no mercy. And no mercy there was. Bolger, Flemmy and Weeks immediately moved into the store, changing its name to the South Boston Liquor Mart, running their illegal businesses from the back room. So once this had happened, I mean, you're, you're terrified, you're outraged at the same time. What did you do? Who did you tell? We went, we, we went to my uncle who was a- So guys, can you imagine that? So this was back in like 1981, that this that they did this and sixty seven thousand dollars guys in nineteen eighty one was the is the equivalent to about purchasing power about two hundred eighteen thousand dollars today right which is crazy 
Um, but mind you, keep keep in mind that they paid a hundred thousand dollars. So basically, Whitey <laughs> went ahead and got a pretty a forty percent discount on that thing because a hundred thousand dollars back then, let's see, was worth the purchasing power of about three twenty five. So he basically, you know, gave them the frac- a fraction of what they had paid, took over the business, and basically kicked them to the curb. So that goes to show the type of individuals that you are dealing with, letting a baby teeth on the barrel of a gun. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, the guy was 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 a G man. He was out here doing crazy shit like that. So there's that's what the Kevin Weeks means when he says that you know they created problems and then they also came back and fixed them. <laughs> <laughs> hey, sorry, bro. I know you lost a million bucks, but I'll help you go find it. Okay, here we go. Found it. Here, oh, but you owe me uh, five hundred thousand dollars for helping you find this one million. <laughs> and they always paid, so we would create the problem and solve the problem. And there really was no problem. The problem was us. Bulger and Weeks work at night and out of sight. Their victims are usually members of the criminal fraternity. By helping Bulger prey on local criminals, Weeks rapidly accumulates a sizable fortune. It's like a uh, a bucket. You put it up. And guys, just so you know, that when they went ahead and extorted that liquor store, it was sometime in the early 90s because that documentary was from October uh, 2001. So, you know, you could say between, you know, 1980, 19, between 1980, like 1983, 1984, somewhere in that range, they went ahead and, and uh, took over that liquor store. Out in the rain. And eventually all those little drops add up and it's full. And we had so many different things going on that there was money coming in from every direction that we were getting rich. Whitey Bulger's rival, Pat Nee, a former armed robber, is lured by the prospect of easy money and joins in. The first time we collected the week's rent off all these guys, I was amazed at the amount of money involved. I said, we've been in the wrong business all these years. You just sit around all week and you get what the winners are at the end of the week. There's no hijacking, there's no guns, there's no chasing trucks trucks around. You just sit someplace and make sure everyone pays up on time. Knee remains wary of his new partner. So they're basically just collecting attacks on everybody because remember the Irish mob ran uh, you know, all these rackets, they'd get some money, push it up to the, you know, the leader of the Winter Hill gang. And then they would, and he would push up and pay money to the mafia who really control the whole area. But, you know, the Irish mafia and the um, Italian mafias were able to coexist during this period of time because, you know, everybody was paying, paying up. There was not that much trust. I was always weary. He wasn't the kind of guy you could get comfortable with. A lot of our guys like to have a good time. Whitey wasn't capable of doing that. He didn't know how to interact with people, uh, except on a business level. And that was usually the scaring people or conning people. I've only seen him out maybe once or twice at social events. He was highly uncomfortable and left as quick as he could. But James... He was an introvert, and you guys are going to see why it was actually good that he was an introvert later on. Whitey Bulger does befriend a young thug named Steve Flemmy. Flemmy is half Italian, half Irish. As an army veteran, he possesses a prowess with guns that earns him the nickname the Rifleman. Stevie Flemmy wasn't a very nice person to be around. There was just nothing there. We'd be talking for an hour, and then he'd jump back in the conversation where it originally started an hour ago. 
I don't know where he went in his head, but he wasn't with us. Him and Whitey seem to understand each other, though. Quick little intro to Stephen Fleming. Okay, here he is right here. Je- Stephen Joseph Fleming, uh, Fleming, born June 9th, 1934, is an American gangster and convicted murderer and was a close associate of Winter Hill gang boss Whitey Bulger. Beginning in 1975, Fleming was a top echelon informant for the Federal Bureau of Investigation, FBI, despite delivering a great deal of intelligence about the inner workings of the patriarchy. Um, crime family, Fleming's own criminal activities proved a public relations nightmare for the FBI. He was ultimately brought up on charges under the RICO Act and pleaded guilty in return for a sentence of life in prison. Yeah, because he had killed a bunch of people, guys. With Fleming's help, Bulger could still pose as a loyal member of the Winter Hill Gang, discreetly murdering anyone who stands in his way. They end up tying Bulger to about 19 murders, guys. Based miles to the north in Somerville, Howie Winter continues to pocket his cut from the Southie Rackets, unaware of the growing Bulger menace. He was very, very uh, cute the way he went about doing things, you know? I mean, and uh, they were over there in South Boston, and I was going about my business, you know, and you'd hear that this guy was missing or something like that, and you wouldn't think anything of it, you know? James Whitey Bulger wants to get to the top of Boston's Irish gangland. By 1978, only Howie Winter stands in his way. Yet Winter's luck is running out. Winter participates in a race-fixing scheme at the horse tracks. The gang bribes jockeys and dopes horses to get the results they want. Oh, shit! Oh, shit! But a jockey is caught and soon spills the beans to the FBI. His testimony helped send Howie Winter to jail for 10 years for racketeering. Bulger and Fleming. Remember- and that right there. FBI, open up! They go ahead and take out the boss of the Winter Hill gang. And now this is the big transition period here. Members of the gang walk free. James Whitey Bulger takes over as boss. Pat Nee is suspicious. Whitey wasn't in that racetrack fixing scheme. Him and Stevie got pulled out of it. They should have been indicted too. They didn't. Mm. Bulger and Fleming avoid indictment because the FBI removes their names from the indictment list. The reason why is astonishing. Bulger and Fleming, now two of the most powerful gangsters in Boston, are also both FBI informants. Holy! Oh shit! Oh shit! And this By goes the to show, 1980. this gets into, you know, one part about Bolger that I thought he was very intelligent for utilizing his position as an informant to insulate himself from prosecution while simultaneously taking out competition. So that in that whole horse, that bookmaking scheme that they had where they were doping horses and cheating and fixing races, et cetera, to make a bunch of money. Because remember, keep in mind, guys. So think about this for a second. Just so you guys got to get a full picture of how they were running this thing. Um, you know, you got. Whitey Bulger, and you got Steve Fleming. You got a bunch of bookmakers, right, that are taking bets on horse racing, all right? Taking a bunch of bets, taking a bunch of bets, which this is illegal. So they're extorting those guys. You got to pay me a cut of all the money that you're getting for these sport, for this sports betting. So they go ahead and get a cut of that. Not only are they getting a cut from the bookmakers who are taking the bets, they also are involved of fixing the races and doping up the horses, paying off jockeys, all this other stuff, right? 
messing with the race races so that they would, you know, ensure that certain people win so that they can go ahead and make more money. So they were making money from that. They're making money from extorting the bookkeepers. And on top of that, they go ahead and cooperate with the FBI and get this guy, the first guy um, with, from the Winter Hill Gang, the leader of the Winter Hill Gang at the time, who is um, <clears throat> Howard Winter. He gets indicted in 75 as the main guy. Meanwhile, Bolger and Flemmy do not get indicted, right? And here they are going back to this organizational chart, right? So you guys know what I'm talking about. And I'll show, pull it up on screen one more time for you guys so that we can uh, stay on track here. Uh, hold on. Share share screen. This is it right here, guys. Right? Here's that organizational trial I was telling you all about. Here's Howard Winter right here. He gets taken out. And then Whitey and Flemmy are able to continue running the gambling business while extorting gamblers as well. Right? And they're making money from the races too. So, and they're collecting taxes on everybody. People that are selling dough, people that are doing bookkeeping, people that are they're extorting people. They're you know doing protection rackets, as you guys can see. They got the liquor store, so they're making money hand over fist every single week, guys. Okay, going crazy. So, and they're providing information to the bureau and protecting themselves. James White. So let's go ahead and uh, back to the documentary, gentlemen. Whitey Bulger has finally made himself undisputed king of Boston's Irish gangland. But while he kills informants who rat on him, he himself is an FBI informant. Whitey Bulger and his deputy Steve Flemmy are both part of the FBI's top echelon program. Informant information is critically important in order to enhance uh, public safety. Michael Sullivan run, ran the uh, Organized Crime Task Force guys in Boston at the time, back in the 80s, who was responsible for taking over the mafia, okay? So he obviously was, you know, aware of Bolger being an informant to help them take down the mafia. You look at identifying people in the organizational structure, anybody that might uh, be able to assist law enforcement you know, to infiltrate that organization. In Boston, busting the mafia the city's oldest organized crime group. And we're going to go ahead and play this little clip for you guys from the movie Black Mass of this alliance between Special Agent John Connolly, who was the main case agent against the mafia, Jerry uh, Angelo and them, and um, and him and Bolger meeting. You got two minutes. Hey, I'm going to come right to it. Hey, I have it on very good authority that Gennaro Angelo is planning to have you murdered. That's so. And how does he plan to achieve that? That's the kind of information that my side gets. And that's the kind of information that we can provide. John, do you know what I do to rats? It ain't ratting, Jimmy. It's an alliance. An alliance between me and the FBI. No, no. Between you and me. I can help you. Jimmy, and you can help me. I'm not trying to clean up Southie. I love this place. I'm interested in the North End. I'm interested in the mafia. Southie is Irish, right? The Irish run a part of Boston. And the North End is the Italian portion. And guys, just so you know, John Connolly, okay, is from Southie, okay? He was from Boston. Him and um, Him and James Bolger... Grew up together, and his brother uh, William Bolger. Okay, they all knew each other, guys. So John Connolly 
new um, Bulger. And, and Bulger, guys, was like kind of like a, a neighborhood folktale hero, you know. And um, John Connolly was actually getting bullied quite a bit as a kid. And Southie and Bulger had actually gotten some bullies off of him. So there was always a mutual respect um, between the two. And there begins the alliance. Now, in real life, guys, they actually met on a beach the first time. Um, and here's John Connolly right here, by the way. Uh, former special agent, right? He ended up getting indicted later on for obstruction of justice, racketeering, a bunch of other stuff like that. But um, this is him. I think he's out of prison now. He got out recently, like a year or two ago, if I'm not mistaken. But we'll confirm that a little bit later. Back to the documentary. Is part of a national FBI priority. The feds believe Whitey Bulger can help them bring the mob down. The Boston Mafia is based in the city's Italian district, the North End, a maze of bars and restaurants located just to the east of some of America's most important historical sites. Whitey Bulger has a difficult relationship with the city's Italian mobsters. And the North End, guys, just so you know, I'm very familiar with the North End because um, North Station, so I used to, when I was an intern, guys, remember I told you guys, I used to work at the TIP Federal Building when I was an intern. That's in the north end of Boston because you got to go into North Station. I take I would take the uh, the green line in, or excuse me, I would take the orange line in from Boss from uh, Ruggles right in Northeastern. Take it to to North Station, and and then I would uh, you know get out and then the tip building was right there. And actually, you know what? Let's let's go down memory lane real quick. This is gonna uh, bring back some pretty good memories of mine, and I'll show you guys kind of what I mean by this because it's much easier if I show you. So ten Causeway. Street, Boston, Massachusetts. Okay. So this right here, guys, was where your boy Myron Gaines used to go as an intern every single day. All right. So this is the federal Tip O'Neill Federal Building right here. Okay. Right here, 10 Causeway Street. So I used to go in there when I was working for Homeland Security Investigations, HSI, because they have an office here. And then they also have an office at the JFK Federal Building, which is right down the street that way. But here, guys, if you look, is North Station right next door right here oh they switched it up it changed yeah they wow it's so different now it's way nicer than it was but this is basically you go through this way and i remember when i used to go home this is yeah you go into here and you would be able to get into the the t right now the north end guys is right here right you keep walking down the street here man this brings back oh wow they switched it oh wow this is a whole mall now yeah they changed this didn't exist before guys no it looked really creepy before wow okay but yeah this is where the the celtics play guys this area right here and so the Bruins. yes and the bruins as well right so you come over here right and then this right here guys gets you into the north end all right Yeah, this brings back good memories. Because I remember sometimes for lunch, I would go up this way to get pizza. Okay? And just so y'all know where we are. Well, so this is the North End right around here. All right? And this is next to where, you know, the mafia used to... Uh, 
used to run all their businesses, guys. But you can see it's it's not far from you know where I used to work, man. This is the the the, the you know they call it North Station for a reason, and this is where the Celtics will play. And this is crazy. This whole building here is brand new. That did not exist when I was there. There's TD Garden right there, where they would play, right? And I'd take the tea right right there. And or or if I didn't take the tea, guys, I would come in this way. I'll show you guys the route that I used to take. This is so fucking crazy looking at this. Yeah, it's changed a lot. It's it's changed a lot. But this is a lot of um fun it's, going it's down a lot memory of lane. Now. So it's like So I used to go ahead, guys, and come through Storo Drive, right? So when it was cold, I would take the train. But right <clears throat> when I was riding when I was in college, right? And I would like because I would come after practice. So this was my day, guys, right? So I wake up at five o'clock in the morning, I'd go to practice, which is all the way on Soldiers Soldiers Road, uh by Harvard Stadium. Okay, damn near it was Watertown essentially. So I would come from over here, right? And I remember, yep, I would come from over here. And this brings you pretty much to close to Star Drive. So I would ride my bike <laughs> right in from this area here every day. This was, you know, from pretty much the entire fall, right? Until it started snowing, then I would stop because it would be too cold to ride a bike. And my little uh, specialized. Why was that so far, though? Like, it... it... Oh, right. The boathouse, I was there so far. Yeah. Because that's that's where that's where they had it. Even though I went to school in Northeastern, yeah, the, I, the boathouse was all the way over like there. A boathouse and like next to like. Home. And then here's the uh, here's the is this the aquarium over here? I think it's the aquarium. And mm. then here's a uh, yeah, here's a state police barrack right here. And then bam, here's Star Drive. And I would ride this right. I would take this thing all the way down back into the city, right back into like downtown. But I would take this this route every day, guys. It would be freaking oh yeah that makes sense oh man yeah because and you go all the way here's star drive i would go all the way back to shit man let me let me oh let me zoom out a bit zoom out and star drive is like a bitch to like drive yeah it's, it's just like it's a pain so much traffic. yeah right around here so i would ride my bike from like right around this area here right harvard area soldiers field road right here okay all the way here to the tip building every day. See that bike? Look at that bike ride, man. That shit crazy. I would never. Matter of fact, you know what? Will it let me do directions? Yeah. How do I do that? Just type in. Press, um, put directions. Oh, yeah, directions. Stupid. Starting point. Uh, I'll just put here Northeastern Boathouse. Henderson Boathouse. Let me try it. You know what? Ender. Oh, I know. okay. I now I know what. Yeah, Henderson Boathouse, Soldiers Field Road. That's that's the northeastern boathouse. So I used to make this, guys. This was my bike ride every day, <laughs> cycling, six miles, six six point four miles. I would make that bike ride every single day, guys. Going to from practice here, all the way to North Station, right here, which is where Ten Causeway Street was, and then this is the north end, this whole area right here. Okay, and that's where the mafia was operating back then. A lot of good pizza shops out there, though. So, anyway, memory lane. Always very nice to go down. So, the relationship was, um, I don't know how to put it, maybe an uneasy truce. You know, I don't think either side really trusted the other side. The problem stems from the mob supremacy in the city. The Boston Mafia is backed by New England crime boss Raymond Patriarca. 
The connection makes the Boston Mafia potentially dangerous. The mafia has a lot of teeth. Yeah, they can bite you from any direction. See how mafia is dangerous. And this is the family that they were talking about, guys. Here's a patriarchal crime family. Uh, also known as the New England Mafia, the Boston Mafia, the Providence Mafia, or the office, an Italian mafia family in New England. It is has two distinct factions, one based in Providence, Rhode Island, and the other in Boston, Massachusetts. The family is currently led by Carmen the Cheeseman Denuzio, who is part of the Boston faction. The family is primarily active in Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut with other territory throughout New England. And the, the Angelos ran Boston. Before going to jail in 1977, Irish gang boss Howie Winter works to coexist with the Italian Mafia. If someone wanted to operate in an area, we'd make sure that we were not stepping on any of their toes and uh, that that way we always got along real good with them. And if someone did operate in an area, we would always go to them and tell them, you know, nine out of 10 times they would say, that's fine, you know. So under his reign, you know, there was peace between the Mafia the Italian mafia and the Irish mafia, but he gets arrested, um, you know, for rigging horse races. So let's see what happens next. But Bulger resents having to cater to the mafia. Remember the mafia controls everything. So he's got to pay up to them. So he's like, what the fuck? Why am I paying these guys, you know, our money? Like this is BS. But obviously back then guys in the seventies, the mafia ran everything right in new England, in New York in Vegas in Florida, they're running everything. And if you didn't cooperate with the mafia, you were going to get killed if you didn't pay your dues. But Bolger didn't want to pay. So when the FBI reaches out to Bolger and Fleming, they decide to cooperate. For them, it's a golden opportunity to use federal help to bring down a major rival. But there's also an added bonus. Protection from investigation. Oh, now you're talking... Bolger's like, wait, you telling me that I can provide information on my competition while simultaneously not going to jail and making more money? Sign me up! Under the top echelon program, the FBI can shield informants from the police as a way of keeping them on the street. Normally, the FBI and local law enforcement routinely share details of their organized crime operations. But in Whitey Bulger's case, the disclosure is strictly one way. There's no obligation, certainly, to share information. There's nothing within our rules um, or within our law that requires that um, to happen. But good law enforcement practices would suggest that there should be you know, some communication between the law enforcement agencies. In this case, such communication doesn't happen. The FBI does not reveal Bulger's informant status to the local cops. Whitey Bulger is occasionally captured on Boston police surveillance cameras. Unaware of the extent of his crimes, the city cops consider him a small-time Southie hood. So the state police and the Boston Police Department was looking at Whitey Bulger guys back then as well. Um, but since Bulger was cooperating with the FBI, FBI didn't want to let them know that he was an informant, which, you know, I'll be honest with you guys, when I was working uh, on the job, right, a lot of the time if an agency had someone as an informant that was a criminal as well, a lot of the times, unless they're working in a joint investigation with you, they would not tell you that their guy was an informant because obviously that can cause issues, right? So they were more focused on the Italian mafia and not the Irish mafia.
is that right? No. You know, I, I genuinely do think that, you know, when you work with other agencies, you need to be uh, transparent and have full disclosure. But, hey, this shit happens a lot of times on the job. So in 1980, when Bulger is spotted at a garage near the North End, far from his home turf, the local cops take an interest. And I'll show you guys exactly what it what they mean by this. Okay, and that nowadays, guys, there's a bunch of methodologies, right, with deconfliction. Something called deconfliction now exists where, you know, if you're looking at a target, you put that person's name in, and then if someone else puts that name in, then they'll go ahead and they'll connect you this, like, service, and then you go ahead and you speak to that law enforcement officer, whether they work for DEA, FBI, whatever it may be, and you're able to kind of deconflict and figure out what's going on here. So there are a bunch of instruments now put in place to kind of help of, uh, fix this problem with um, people working the same guy but one state police were out to get. In 1980, state police stumbled on Whitey Bulger's headquarters, a garage on Lancaster Street near the Old Garden. Which is literally right next to where I just showed you guys where the tip building is. I used to walk back and forth on this street to, you know, deliver paperwork and stuff because they had two different federal buildings. You had the Tip O'Neill Federal Building and then the JFK Federal Building down the street. So I had to walk down Lancaster Street every single day as an intern, man. Around the same time the Angelo's headquarters were about to be bugged by the FBI, the state police figured it was the perfect opportunity to drop a few bugs on Whitey and Stephen Fleming. Or so they thought. State police did not know Whitey Bulger was an informant for the FBI. All they knew was the guy was trouble. And what they did is that they, there's a rooming house. It was, it was once a rooming house across the street. They took a room. And for the next several months, they went up there, a team of, of state troopers, and were clicking away with their, with their, with their cameras to develop uh, their investigation and their probable cause to do a bug over here. And they just had this wonderful photo album of Whitey, Stevie doing business here, mafia figures, the Anjulo brothers coming over for meetings, standing in the garage bays, talking. And it was, you know, a very rich uh, investigative material. And whatever happened with the evidence that the state police collected that was going on here? Well, it all folded. I mean, it, it now stands as one of the big leaks and one of the big failures in the efforts to, to chase Whitey Bulger. Again, this is 1980. And what happened was after these weeks and months of developing the probable cause to get a judge to approve a bug, the state troopers put the bugs in here and Whitey and Fleming knew about them right away. Yeah. Somebody and so, told him. That's right. Indeed, someone. There's John Conley right there. This iconic picture is when he actually arrested uh, one of the Angelo brothers. And I'll show you guys uh, this photo here in full. Had told them. And authorities think that someone was FBI agent John Connolly. Meanwhile, even though Bulger had dodged a bullet, he abandoned Lancaster Street. Now the winter hill. All right, let's go back. That's how much the FBI wanted the mafia, man. They they didn't even care how how you know they they didn't care about anything else except for getting them back then. They were priority number one back in the seventies and eighties. A Massachusetts state police surveillance team gets these pictures of Bulger meeting with mob boss Jerry Angulo's brother. When the FBI is informed, the meetings stop. It's part of a. Here's the photo that they were talking about. Here's John Connolly right here, guys, with uh, Jerry Angelo right here after they arrested him. This photo right here. Repeating pattern. Every time the state cops have Bulger under surveillance and inform the... So he was meeting with them to gather information for John Connolly 
so that they can go ahead and bug up 98 Prince Street, which I showed you guys before, right here. That's why he was meeting with these guys in the North End to get that information and give it back to John Connolly. But at the same time, John Connolly didn't want the state police and the Boston Police Department to go ahead and arrest his informant because he was trying to build a case on the mafia. Okay. So it's a shame that they didn't work together and just, you know, put this put this um, together. But, hey, uh, you know, this happens a lot, guys, where agencies don't share information and issues like this arise. The FBI. Bulger stops talking openly. We had numerous, uh, you know, wiretaps going and bugs, you know, throughout the city. You know, but if it started moving over towards Bulger and Flemmy's group, oftentimes those investigations were being compromised. It was kind of clear that there was something happening there. There was some kind of relationship that was not allowing uh, investigations to be conducted on them. The state cops come to suspect that Bulger is under FBI protection. But now they accuse the feds of alerting Bulger when local law enforcement is watching him. And that's more than protection. It's corruption. That's when we started to run into a little bit of conflict. Um, with with uh, some of the people in the FBI. Now, let me tell you guys how you're supposed to address situations like this normally in the field. So if you got uh, an informant, right, and they're they're gathering information for you, and then they, you find out that another agency is looking at that individual, right, you got to have a meeting with those people and let them know, listen, man, this guy's working for me. You know, we're gathering information on this investigation, blah, 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 blah. Um, this is what we got going on. And, you know, deconflict it. And, you know, work together. But here, what the FBI, the mistake the FBI did was John Connolly probably didn't want to share information with the state police and the, and the Boston Police Department. And it ended up, you know, putting them in a bad situation because they were going ahead trying to build a case against Bolger, right? And they didn't know that he was an informer for the FBI at the time. So they're looking at it like, yo, what the fuck? Why is it that every time we actually get this kind of surveillance or whatever the hell, you know, he stops showing up, he stops using phone lines, whatever it may be. But, there was other issues at bay here, which you, were, you guys are going to find out later on. But normally in a situation like this, if you have an informant and they're, uh, you know, getting looked at by another agency for their criminal activity, because let's be honest here, informants are criminals themselves. That's why they're able to give you such good information. Um, you're supposed to meet with that other agency, contact them, communicate, let them know what's going on and bring them on in the case or share information, whatever it may be. And, you know, take it down together. But the problem here with the Bureau is that they didn't want to share information with the state police and the Boston Police Department, which is going to cause problems. And you're going to see why here in a second. So John Connolly fucked up there. Stupid. Um, by not involving the other agencies so there would be some transparency. Now, are, are do they have to share information? They don't. You know, a lot of the times agencies won't want to share information for certain reasons. But, you know, this, this, was, uh, this was a situation where they should have. At the height of the growing conflict between the state police and FBI, Robert Fitzpatrick is appointed deputy chief of the Boston FBI office. I was told uh, that I had to go up there, uh, kick some ass, and take names uh, because the office uh, did have a problem. But I wasn't really told specifically what the problem was. Fitzpatrick interviews Bulger personally. He wants to check out how much the... Okay, so you guys are probably wondering what the hell is an assistant special agent in charge. So let me uh, describe this structure to you guys real quick so that it makes sense. So you got the special agent who's John Connolly, right? He's the actual case agent running the investigation. Then above him, you got something called the supervisory special agent, okay? That was John Morris at the time, 
Okay, he's the one signing off on things, making sure that Connolly gets what he needs to go ahead and do his case. Then on top of John Morris is the assistant special agent in charge, or ASAC, also known as. Um, so the, they call it SSA is a supervisory special agent. An SA is a special agent, supervisory special agent, SSA. And then you got ASAC, assistant special agent in charge. So that's what Fitzpatrick was in this situation. So he came in and he over started overseeing this investigation as the ASAC, and this is where he comes in. That's what he's talking about. The Irish mobster really knows about the Italian mafia. The meeting does not go well. My gut visceral reaction was, whoa, you know, who's this guy? He's got this tough guy stance, talk about tough guy stuff. And it's I, I, I. What I did, I did this, I did that. But nothing what he's doing for the FBI. You know, Whitey, what are you doing for me? I, I know what you do, but what are you doing for me? Fitzpatrick recommends that Bulger's informant status be terminated. This would make him fair game for any local police investigation. But Bulger has friends inside the FBI. Bulger's FBI handler is Agent John Connolly. Above him is Supervisor John Morris. When Fitzpatrick talks to Morris about terminating Bulger, he gets a surprising response. I says, uh, we're going to close this guy. And Morris looked at me and says, no, you're not. And I got a little angry, to be honest with you. And I looked at him, I says, what do you mean? He says, you'll never close Bulger. Morris is proven right. He and Conley persuade their FBI superiors that Bulger's intelligence on the mafia is too valuable to lose. Fitzpatrick remains unconvinced. I'm hitting a blank wall here. And I'm beginning to think that uh, something's wrong. So the Fitzpatrick guys actually ended up testifying for Whitey Bulger's defense at Whitey Bulger's trial back in 2013. And he went ahead and got indicted for it, perjury. Okay, guys, uh, here's the press article right here. A former assistant special agent in charge sentenced for perjury and obstruction of justice during Bulger trial. So, um, Specifically, Fitzpatrick admitted that contrary to her sworn testimony at the Bulger trial, his assignment to the FBI in 1980s ASAC was not a special mission ordered by the special assistant director of the FBI because there were problems in office, but rather a routine reassignment. Bulger never said, I'm not an informant, otherwise denied being an informant when he met with Fitzpatrick. Fitzpatrick never tried to close Bulger as an inform FBI informant. Fitzpatrick was demoted from ASAC because he falsified official FBI re rep reports in connection with a shooting incident, not because he reported corruption. Fitzpatrick did not arrest mob boss Gennaro and Julo, and Fitzpatrick did not find or recover the rifle James Earl Ray used to assassinate Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. at the Lorraine Hotel in Memphis, Tennessee in 1968. So he ended up getting indicted himself <laughs> for fraud, okay? Um, so he's no angel himself, and um, and he wrote a book, uh, actually, uh, Fitzpatrick was the author of Betrayal, Whitey Bulger, an FBI agent who fought to bring him down, was called to testify at the Bulger trial on July 29th and July 30th, 2013, and pleading guilty. Fitzpatrick admitted that he lied when he testified at Bulger's trial, that he tried to end Bulger's relationship with the FBI and target Bulger for prosecution, but was overruled by higher authorities in the FBI. So they went ahead and got him for trying to say that he was a whistleblower when he really wasn't. Okay? So just for full transparency there, Fitzpatrick right there is definitely nope. cap right there. Fitzpatrick's suspicions grow when one day Conley invites him to a meeting at this building, the Massachusetts So State now House. that we know that he isn't really He's honest, let's keep moving forward. Close ties with the Bulger family. Both grew up in South Boston. Okay, so there's James Connolly and there's 
uh, John Conley, sorry. And there's William Bulger, John uh, James Whitey Bulger's brother. Both live in the same neighborhood. Fitzpatrick thinks that maybe the federal agent is trying to win favor from the state Senate president by protecting his criminal brother. I began to see that, whoa, this guy. Local streets. We had to do our job and let the chips fall where they fall. And, and that's what we focused on. Uh, you know, we knew they had killed people. Um, how much more are we going to let that go on? But for the moment, the Bulger crime spree continues. As local police try to get closer, Bulger embarks on a criminal adventure that will make headlines around the world. By the mid-1980s, James Whitey Bulger seems to be above the law. He and sidekick Steve Fleming are covert FBI informants. In turn, they receive protection from police investigators. But senior FBI agent Robert Fitzpatrick senses Bulger's FBI handlers are doing more than protecting him. They're tipping him off. Somehow, the, the bad guys, uh, the wise guys, are finding out what we're doing. And that information may in fact be coming from FBI agents. At the height of his power, Bulger embarks on a venture that will extend his influence far beyond the city of Boston, all the way to the land of his ancestors, Ireland. Since the late 1970s, Pat Nee, once Bulger's bitter enemy, has devoted himself to a cherished cause. Enter Irish IRA. The IRA's war against Great Britain. Okay, you guys are probably wondering, what the hell is the IRA? Let's go ahead and break this bad boy down real quick for y'all. Irish Republican Army, okay? The Irish Republican Ar Army IRA is a name used by various paramilitary organizations in Ireland throughout the 20th and 21st centuries. Organizations by this name have been dedicated to irredent irredentism through the Irish Republicanism. Okay, well, what does that mean? I've never heard that word before. It's the doctrine of political or popular movements that claim it seek to occupy usually uh, territory considered lost or unredeemed to the nation. Okay, cool. All right. Um, the belief that all of Ireland should be an independent republic free from British rule. The original Irish Republican Army, uh, 1919 to 1922, now off, uh, often now referred to as the old IRA, was raised in 1917 from members of the Irish Volunteers and the Irish Citizen Army, later reinforced by Irishmen, formerly in the British Army in World War I, who returned to Ireland to fight against the Britain, uh, against Britain in the Irish War of Independence. In Irish law, the IRA was the army of the Revolutionary Irish Republic, as declared by its parliament, Dale Irene, in 1919. Okay. So, fighting against British rule. I grew up in a small little part of Ireland. My family's political beliefs, they were Republican in the Irish sense of the word. We really did feel that the British had no place in Northern Ireland, and we could do, we would do whatever we could to help. In 1974, Nee begins running guns to the IRA. Every year, they'd start coming what we call shopping lists, and the shopping lists became larger. Bulger offers to help. He and Nee begin raising money for guns from an unlikely source, Boston's drug dealers. We took money off drug dealers locally. We had very little respect for most of them. It's what we call a soft shake. 
You know, it's either help us or be our enemy. The choice is yours. But the IRA's demands keep growing. The shopping list grew, our commitment grew. And then they came with the big shopping list. In 1984, the IRA asks for one of the biggest shipments yet. We get 60,000 rounds of ammo, rifles, Holy. shotguns, pistols. Drug money buys the guns, and drug dealers supply a vessel, the Valhalla. Enter McIntyre. The Valhalla sets sail in September 1984. The plan is to unload its deadly cargo onto an Irish ship and then return to Boston. But things go wrong when Irish police bust the shipment. The operation to unload the massive arsenal started around dawn. Late this afternoon, the weapons and packing cases were loaded onto army lorries. The Valhalla makes it back to Boston and straight into the hands of U.S. Customs. In the United States, customs officers have seized an American trawler, the Valhalla, on suspicion of gun running for the IRA. Customs agents seize the boat and take the crew into custody, including John McIntyre, a marijuana smuggler. McIntyre is questioned, then released. By the DEA. Bulger suspects McIntyre is cooperating with the authorities. We heard that one of the two people that were on that boat were cooperating with law enforcement. Jim decided that uh, it was possibly McIntyre. So uh, we devised a plan to have him come in and find out exactly if it was him that was cooperating. Weeks lures McIntyre to this South Boston house, then owned by a Bulger associate, with a party invitation. It's a trap. Under Bulger's relentless interrogation, McIntyre reveals that he's told the cops about the Valhalla. As Bulger's partners, Steve Fleming and Kevin Weeks look on, Bulger discovers more. The terrified seaman reveals key details of Boston's drug trade. When Whitey Bulger's heard enough, he makes a fateful decision. Jim Bulger decided Holy. that um, he couldn't trust McIntyre, so he killed him. And he decided to shoot him, so he shot him in the head. You know, he was still alive, and he shot him both times in the face and killed him. Afterwards. Now, I'll go show you guys the scene that they got from the movie Black Mass of how he killed McIntyre. So they lure him to the house thinking it's a party, right? Which they showed that in the movie. But this is what the movie showed here. It's in Spanish. Let me see if I can hit this goddamn thing. <laughs> how did you get it? Yeah, I don't know. They got it or <laughs> they got it in some some other language, but you guys go with saying it. I couldn't get it in English. I don't like movies in Spanish. At least I don't get it in freaking uh, copyright here. So he beat the crap out of him. Is this Spanish? This is Italian. It's Italian? Spanish and Italian are kind of like the same. Not fully, but... So in the movie, he chokes him. But... The normal way they would kill him, guys, is they kill, 
and then they pull their teeth out. Because remember, this is before DNA, so people wouldn't be able to identify them. It's basically, we just took them and uh, we dug a hole and buried the body, cleaned up and went home. Flemmy yanks the teeth to hide McIntyre's identity. In those days, they didn't have the uh, DNA evidence. So the, uh, one of the techniques for identifying bodies was dental records, and that's where the teeth were pulled. This is not the only person who falls victim to Bulger. Bulger is on a murderous rampage. By 1986, U.S. Customs ties some of the Valhalla's guns to the man who bought them, Pat Nee. Nee gets four years in jail. He says nothing about Whitey Bulger's involvement. But dramatic events in Boston's North End District signal a change in Bulger's fortunes. In 1986, the FBI finally busts the leadership of the Boston Mafia. Local chief Jerry Angiulo is jailed for a staggering 45 years on assorted charges of racketeering. <laughs> a year later, he's like, fuck the FBI. His consigliere, Larry Zanino, gets 30 years for similar crimes. But that's off of information that Whitey Bulger provided telling the FBI where the house was, right? We talked about this earlier, 98 Prince Street out there in the North End. Bulger's informant status is suddenly under threat. John Connolly, his handler, tries everything he can to link Bulger's name to the bust. He poses with the handcuffed Angelo. And one day, Boston FBI Deputy Chief Robert Fitzpatrick discovers something more. One agent came in and told me that uh, John Connolly was stealing his information. Conley must have thought, well, geez, their information is better than his, so I'll just borrow it, if you will, and I'll use it. Conley is stealing reports from other informants and passing them off as coming from Bulger. Fitzpatrick calls FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. I had said, look. Uh, and we know this is Cap from looking at the uh, the case where they actually prosecuted him. It was the Office of Inspector General for the Department of Justice that got him for lying. Bolger and Flemmy, you can't use them as informants because you're then in bed with who's ordering the killings, the violence, the extortions, the kidnappings. So see, he's trying to distance himself like, oh, I wasn't involved in this. Capra. And you're part and parcel of that. And that was a, a simple argument, I thought. All the agents involved in this, from John Connolly to John Morris to this guy, Fitzpatrick, they were all fucked up. All of them had issues. I was making, but it fell on deaf ears. Connolly and his supervisor, John Morris, have woven such a dense web of deceit around Bulger that no one at FBI headquarters believes Fitzpatrick's allegations. I'm going against the grain. Uh, I'm being told by people at headquarters that we know this is Cap, I'm which I showed you guys, so I'm just going to fast forward this real quick. Marijuana smuggler. Under Bulger's interrogation, McIntyre yielded names and contacts, helping Bulger extend his reach. Street corner deals attract a new kind of criminal to Southie, much to the disgust of old school gangsters like Pat Nee. Low life. A lot of them were users. 
all of a sudden they're making a ton of money. And when they got arrested, all of a sudden they want forgiveness. And I'm sorry. Who can I put in jail instead of me? Bulger has made a crucial mistake. The drug trade leaves him vulnerable to dealers who turn squealers. And this is, uh, guys, so the mafia, just so you guys know, the mafia back then, the Italian mafia had issues with um, trafficking drugs. Now, obviously, you know, a lot of them did get caught for trafficking drugs, famously people like John Gotti. But typically, you know, back then, if you traffic drugs as a as a as a made guy, as a guy in the mafia, you can get killed for that because the problem with drugs is it's a dirty business and the mafia didn't want to be involved because when you deal with drugs, you deal with degenerates, you deal with people that are more likely to you deal, you're dealing with dope fiends, etc. These guys are are, you know, a lot of times they get picked up and they get snitched. So it causes issues for the family when you're involved in drug trafficking that can open everyone else up to issues. So typically drug trafficking was looked at as something like, yo, we don't want to be involved in this. So Bolger getting involved in the drug game opens up to quite a bit of liability because we know that drugs are it's it's a it's a conspiracy based crime inherently because you have to have someone that supplies you have to have someone that that, that has so you know someone that manufactures it someone that supplies it then someone that distributes it and then someone else that you know traffics it whatever it may be someone that deals with the money in the currying so drug trafficking in itself is always going to be a conspiracy based case which means what you have the opportunity for snitches to go ahead and provide information. So that's why um, the mafia traditionally always stayed away from drugs and a lot of criminal organizations back then stayed away from it. But Bolger, you know, being the greedy guy that he was, opened himself up with the drug trafficking. And he ends up getting in the eyes of the DEA here. Also makes him a target for a second federal agency, the DEA. If the DEA can link Bolger to drugs, his informant status may not protect him. In the early 1990s, after 15 years of murder and extortion under FBI protection, the tide is finally about to turn against James Whitey Bulger. In 1990, Boston's Irish gang boss James Whitey Bulger is starting to feel the pinch. For years, he has secretly been protected from the law courtesy of two FBI agents. But now the DEA is beginning to close in. Drug enforcement agents find a South Boston street dealer with a story to tell. He's lost over $100,000 in a Coke buy gone wrong, and it leaves him oh, unable to pay Whitey Bulger. Fearing for his life, the dealer begins to talk. In August 1990, the DEA busts over 50 Bulger associates, Oh, in an instant, Whitey's drug oh, ring is smashed, oh, but Bulger remains free. FBI maneuvering keeps Bulger out of the DEA's case. Agent John Connolly continues to argue that Bulger is a valuable source on the mafia, but the pretext is wearing thin. As you look over all those reports, they provided a lot of gossip about the uh, mafia, but it was mainly stuff like, you know, so-and-so's going to this wedding or, uh, you know, uh, Joey's brother opened a restaurant on Hanover Street. Since the mid-80s, the FBI has scored a string of major Boston mafia busts, all without significant information from Bulger. I think the record would suggest that James Whitey Bulger did not give significant value to help dismantle the um, organized crime in Massachusetts. He gave some information that he thought would be potentially be helpful to him, more helpful to him than helpful to law enforcement. 
With Connolly's help, Bulger has successfully fooled the FBI into protecting him for over 15 years. John Connolly? But in December 1990, Don Connolly reaches retirement age. With Connolly's departure, Bulger's informant status is terminated, just as the law is closing in. Federal prosecutors and the Massachusetts State Police build a case that links Bulger and Flemmy to extortion and money laundering. So it was actually the DEA and the state police were able to build a case. In January 1995, the cops pounce. Flemmy is arrested. A colleague of Conley mentions plans for the bust to the former agent. Conley wastes no time in tipping Bulger off. As Flemmy goes to jail, James Whitey Bulger goes on the run. During Flemmy's trial in 1997, the news breaks that Bulger and Flemmy are both FBI informants. The reports shake Kevin Weeks to the core. In the last 20, 25 years of my life has been a lie. And the person that uh, I trust the most and I respect the most is doing everything that he preached against. Kevin Weeks is finally arrested in 1999. It takes him two weeks before he gives information on Whitey Bulger. They actually, they, he, they gave him, uh, when he got arrested originally, guys, they made jokes on him, uh, calling him Kevin two weeks, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, uh, to, two weeks to snitch, etc., making fun of him for, uh, for uh, you know, informing on Whitey Bulger. Weeks is breaking his own gang ethics. Because, you know, we had... Oh, my bad, guys, hold on. Thank you, too. Weeks' testimony reveals, but then I started getting mad because you know we had uh, we killed people for being informants. Weeks' testimony reveals the full brutal extent of Bulger's crimes. As the remains of Bulger's victims are recovered, investigators like Robert Fitzpatrick and Tom Foley are finally vindicated. It wasn't until we started pulling the bones out of the ground and showing the bodies of their victims did some people take a step back and all, all of a sudden that so he pointed them to the direction of bodies which included mcintyre as well guys who i told you guys before was the person that um was involved in driving uh you know captaining the boat the valhalla to ireland to try to smuggle those guns and ended up getting caught um and he ended up providing information on bolger and a couple other guys to the dea because he was also a pilot as well that was smuggling marijuana so when that gun running situation failed, he went ahead and cooperated and Bolger found out, lured him to the house as a, you know, under the premise of it being a party. And then they killed him. And weeks knew because he was there when they murdered him and was involved in burying the body. So he gives that information to the state police and they're able to dig up the bodies, which obviously they're able to independently corroborate a story, which makes him a credible witness because they were able to actually find a couple of different people buried there. At point say, okay, it finally started registering with people. What we were dealing John Morris is now a federal witness. And that's the supervisor that was managing John Connolly, by the way, guys. And he never got charged for this, which a lot of people are like, what the hell? In return for immunity, he rats on John Connolly, his co-conspirator. I am innocent. And he accepted gifts, wines, money, bribes, all that stuff. Oh, my bad. So let me go back. You guys didn't see that. Sorry. 
what we were dealing with. John Morris is now a federal witness. In return for immunity, he rats on John Connolly, his co-conspirator. I am innocent of the malicious charges that have been leveled against me in this case. Connolly's tip-offs link him to at least three murders, including that of informant Brian Halloran. But in the end... And then this is uh, Whitey Bolger and uh, Kevin Weeks arguing, cursing each other out in court during the Bolger trial. <laughs> so cameras aren't allowed in federal courthouses, but they actually were, you know... You won against the system. What did I win? <laughs> what did I win? You won five years. Five people are dead. Five people are dead. Does that bother you at all? Yeah, it bothers me. How does it bother you? Because we killed people that were rats. And I had the two biggest rats right you next sack. to me. Fuck you, okay? Fuck you, too. What do you want to do? Hey, Mr. Bulger. Mr. Bulger, let your attorney speak for you. Mr. Weeks, here's how this works. You answer the questions, okay? Mr. Carney, you can finish your question. <laughs> Oh, man. A... Nice little reenactment there of them. Connolly is jailed for 10 years for racketeering, obstruction of justice, and lying to an FBI agent. True to his selfie roots, Connolly has stuck by his friend, Bolger. His relationship with Whitey grew over the years until he became a uh, member of the gang. I mean, he had no scruples about uh, telling Whitey anything. He couldn't uh, draw a distinction between his role as a uh, as an FBI agent, a law enforcement officer, and his role as a as a friend of the Bulger family. In 2003, Whitey's brother Billy Bulger appears before the House Committee on Government Reform, a congressional watchdog that investigates federal wrongdoing. Before the panel, Billy falters. Mr. Bulger, what is it that you thought your brother did for a living? For the most part, I had the feeling that he was in the business of uh, gaming and, and uh, whatever it was vague to me, but I didn't think of uh, it for a long while. Unable to... <laughs> <laughs> you mean going ahead and extorting the gaming people? Explain <laughs> how much he did or did not know of his brother's activities. He retires from public life. Today, Boston is counting the cost of the Bulger years. The Irish American community terrorized. A city's faith in its public. And here's a clip from the movie of John uh, John Connolly getting arrested. Guys, here's the clip right here. Why does it look so bad? Yeah, because they're recording it from the movie. Every law enforcement officer's worst nightmare getting arrested, man. To betray the badge. Very bad. Very embarrassing. Crazy. Servants compromised. 
the reputation of America's premier law agency tarnished. After serving various terms in jail, Pat Nee has few regrets for his life of crime. I love being a criminal, right? And I do miss it. My regrets are few. I regret not killing Whitey when I had the chance. And of course I regret getting caught for anything. Other than that, I just wish I had made, wish I had made more money and stashed it. But I didn't. Kevin Weeks admitted participation in five murders, but served a reduced sentence in return for his cooperation. If I saw Jim Bulger today walking down the street, uh, I'd keep on walking. I mean, as far as I look at it, it's the FBI's problem. They created him. They allowed him to do what he was doing. So let them be the ones to catch him. The feds are still searching. James Whitey Bulger is number two on the FBI's 10 most wanted list just behind Osama bin Laden. That's fucking crazy. But the clues are few. A macabre ring, a few notebooks, and a fake Irish passport are among the few artifacts Bulger left behind. All right, so they ended up catching Bulger, guys. A few years after this recorded. FBI's 16-year manhunt for James Whitey Bulger. The search ended in 2011 when agents found the mobster and his girlfriend living in an apartment building in Santa Monica, California. Bulger and Catherine Gregg went by the aliases Charlie and Carol Gasco until the FBI got a tip. Agent Scott Gargariola set up a ruse with their landlord, Josh Bond, and it ended one of the most embarrassing episodes in the Bureau's history. Bond told the FBI he wasn't going to knock on the Gasco's door because there was a note posted expressly asking people not to bother them. Carol had told neighbors that Charlie was showing signs of dementia. So we were, we were back there. So Gariola devised a ruse involving the Gasco storage locker in the garage. It had the name Gasco across it and apartment 303. He had the manager called to tell them that their locker had been broken into and that he needed someone to come down to see if anything was missing. Carol Gasco said her husband would be right down. We just rushed him. Amy, guns out, FBI, sure. don't move. Gave the words, hey, FBI, get your hands up. And hands went up right away. And then at that moment, we told him to get down on his knees, and he gave us, <laughs> yeah, he gave us a, I ain't getting down on my effing knees. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit! Oh, want to get his pants dirty. He didn't want to get his pants dirty. He was wearing all white. Wearing white and seeing the oil on the ground, I guess he didn't want to get down in oil. Even at 81, this was a man used to being in control. I asked him to identify himself, and that didn't go over well. He asked me to effing identify myself, which I did. And I asked him, I said, are you, are you Whitey Bulger? He said, yes. Just about that moment, someone catches my attention from a few feet away by the elevator shaft. It was Janice Goodwin from the third floor coming to do her laundry. And I said, excuse me, I think I can help you. This man has dementia. So if he's acting oddly, you know, that could be why. Immediately what flashed through my mind is, oh, my God, I just arrested an 81-year-old man with Alzheimer's who thinks he's Whitey Bulger. What is he going to tell me next? He's Elvis. <laughs> so I said, do me a favor. I said, this woman over here says you have a touch of Alzheimer's. He said, don't lis listen to her. She's effing nuts. <laughs> he says, uh, I'm James Bulger. That's fucking hilarious. A few minutes. He's like, hey, yeah, don't listen to that fucking crazy ass chick. And then look at this, guys. This is a consensus search here, Federal Bureau of Investigation, Department of Justice, that they ask him to search it. And look, he signs it under his real name. 
later, he confirmed it, signing a consent form allowing the FBI to search his apartment. As he's signing, he says, that's the first time I've signed that name in a long time. Was there a feeling of resignation? I don't, I don't think he had it. I did ask him, I said, hey, Whitey, I said, aren't you relieved that you don't have to look over your shoulder anymore and you know, it's, it's come to an end? And he said, are you nuts? <laughs> you know, it's kind of funny too, guys, because I'll tell you this from my personal experience. A lot of times when you catch someone and they finally get arrested and you're driving them back to the jail and it's like a late night, they'll just knock out and go to sleep. And the reason why is because they're able to finally like kind of rest because like it's over. I'm caught. It is what it is. So they, a lot of times they get their best sleep the day that they're caught a lot of the times. <laughs> Good Funny morning. Stuff. so after that guys he went to trial in 2013 and he got found guilty here's the official press release back from august 12 2013 damn near what wow nine years ago at this point um following a two-month-long trial the jury convicted james bulger holding him responsible for the murder of 11 people as well as numerous counts of extortion money laundering drug dealing and firearms position sentencing will begin on november 13th okay so and he ended up getting uh uh sentencing I know he got he got he got he got like a couple of life sentences if I'm not mistaken guys um well cuz they got him on like what 19 charges for murder yeah they had him well here's the but charges right here so here's his actual this is like the the docket the case docket here um Kevin Weeks Right, they had him there. He got he got a bunch of time off because he cooperated. Kevin P. O'Neill, right here's um, uh, look at look look at all these goddamn charges. Where's there's Stephen Flemmy, right, and then James Bolger is gonna be here somewhere. Michael Flemmy, uh, and then James Bolger is right. Where the hell was it at the top? Maybe, um, Kevin P. O'Neill, defendant, and then defendant three. James Bolger. Here we go. Bam, right. And that's when he got found guilty. That's why it says terminated at 11, 19, 2013, because he got he got he got hit with the judgment. And the indictment I have here as well, guys. But let me go ahead and let's see if we could pull the judgment up here. Control F. And again, this is on Pacer. Here, let me stop sharing screen for a second. What are your thoughts on this, Christina, while I pull this thing up? It's funny. What's funny? Happy <laughs> morning. Literally, no concern. Like, they just don't care. They're like, fuck it. Yeah. I'm gonna Slim Lee. I'm going to just take your liquor, your liquor <laughs> store for a day. They still got you on the liquor store part? Yeah. Uh, here's the actual indictment, guys, real quick. I'll show y'all because you guys can see the list of charges that they had on him. Uh, here share screen this is the actual original indictment guys it took me a while to find this but here we go united states district court 111 page indictment all the charges count one the enterprise right they talk about all the murders he did all that stuff is is here and i you know maybe i'll attach the document here for you guys if you want to read it in the description but this is a 111 page indictment man crazy stuff it goes through all the stuff all the people that he murdered right um, let me see here if I can find the murders. Uh, here, actually, Control F.
Okay, so the forfeiture allegations. Okay, and that's the end. So that's the stuff they they took from took from them. Count forty two. The guns, like they man, they had they, they, dude. This indictment. I, I read through it myself, guys. They have them on so much. They had them on so much stuff. They had an overwhelming amount of evidence on him and his co-conspirators. Um, but let's see here. What? How much time did he end up getting? I I know he got a couple of life sentences, but what ended up happening, guys? He actually got killed while in prison. Okay, it took him like. In in 2018, he got killed, guys, uh, and he, you know, got, died a pretty gruesome death. And we're gonna go ahead and show you guys. And the three guys got indicted. People in Boston and beyond for years. Tonight, three men suspected of killing him are facing murder charges. And an author who interviewed one suspect behind bars tells WBZ this was prison justice. Bulger was killed at a federal prison in West Virginia nearly four years ago. Two of the men now charged are accused of hitting him in the head several times. The suspects are Paul DiColagero from Lowell. Oh, my bad, guys. Holy shit. I didn't even... Christina, pay attention, man. <laughs> I, I didn't even you... see that I had a... Uh... I was watching yours, honestly. <laughs> you gotta watch yours, man. <laughs> Stupid. My bad, guys. Let me uh, <laughs> let me go ahead and share a screen with y'all real fast. My bad. I was really just carrying it. <laughs> So this is uh, three guys that were indicted. He got killed, guys. I think October 30th of 2018, man, they beat him with a sock. Really, they, they said that they beat him so bad that his face was unrecognizable after the three so, guys that uh, killed him while he was in prison uh, serving his sentence. They took this monster minutes. Whitey Bulger terrorized people in Boston and beyond for years. Tonight, three men suspected of killing him are facing murder charges. And an author who interviewed one suspect behind bars tells WBZ... This was prison justice. Bulger was killed at a federal prison in West Virginia nearly four years ago. Two of the men now charged are accused of hitting him in the head several times. The suspects are Paul DiColagero from Lowell and mob enforcer Freddie Gias from West Springfield. A third, Sean McKinnon, is accused of lying to investigators. All were inmates at the time of the murder. Freddie Gias was an old school gangster, and he lived by the code that you don't quote-unquote rat on your friends. Author Casey Sherman interviewed Gius for his book, Hunting Whitey. He says Bulger never should have been transferred to the prison where he was killed because Bulger was a known FBI informant. Yeah, that's crazy that they put him in gen pop like that. Bulger was transferred to USP Hazelden, which is a place that they call Misery Mountain. It's the most violent prison in the federal prison system. The deadly attack on Bulger happened just hours after he was transferred from a Florida prison where he'd been serving a life sentence for 11 murders. WBZ interviewed a judge. He got charged with 19 but convicted of 11. ...on the Bulger trial and spoke with her shortly after he was killed. He's 89 years old. Why wasn't he moved to the medical facility? And why didn't anybody notice the commotion? Bulger was on the FBI's most wanted list for years before police arrested him in Southern California in 2011. Tonight, U.S. Attorney Rachel Rollins says Bulger's family experienced the excruciating pain that Bulger inflicted on so many other families. And Rollins says in the truest of ironies, the justice system is now coming to their aid by arresting the mobsters accused killers. A lot of people said it was justice because he had killed so many people himself and, you know, in gruesome ways. And, you know, it, it kind of. I mean, you can't feel bad. Look yeah. What you said to like other people, like it's gonna go back on you. Yeah. You know, you live by the sword, you die by the sword, right? 
Um, but that was an epic fuck up by the government um, for not putting him in proper um, in a proper situation. Okay, judgment of USA to James Bolger. Okay, so let's see here. So I think this is a judgment right here, guys. I'm trying to get it for y'all. I don't know why they didn't put it here. So James Bolger, judgment entered March 4th, 2016. Uh, so there was an appeal. Okay, but why? that's not what we want. We want the actual judgment. Bear with me here, guys. You guys are learning how much Pacer sucks balls. God damn it. Okay, so run. Yeah, this is what we want. This case right here. Run the query. Go to docket report. Run report. And we're going to do as initially requested. Okay, so now we have the case. And I'll enlarge it for you all so you can kind of see what's going on here. Okay. And you scroll down. You guys can see there's a, but this was a long case. So there was a lot of stuff. Let me put down here faster. Judgment's going to be down here. You want to look for judgment. So here's judgment, opinion. Okay, hold on. Control F. Doing it through Control F. all the way down here because we're still in 2013 okay 2013 um i think this is it right here okay it's committed to the custody bureau for life okay so this is what he got guys here it is right here he got committed to the custody of the Bureau of Prisons for life, followed by con a consecutive minimum mandatory term of five years and a, a consecutive minimum mandatory term of life in prison. The term consists uh, of terms of life on counts 1SS and 2SS, 240 months, etc. So this is the actual official judgment um, right here. Let's pull up this document. View all. This is the judgment of Whitey Bulger right here. To let me view it, god damn it. Come on. It's acting up. Yeah, it's acting slow. Bear with me, guys, here. This is a very this 37-page judgment, which actually isn't very common. All right, so this is what a judgment looks like, guys. So here it is. Um, these are the charges they hit him with money laundering, possession of firearms, possession of machine guns, and furtherance of violent crime, possession of unregistered machine guns, possession of machine guns, possession of firearms with obliterated serial numbers. Okay. So he got uh, the defendant is hereby committed to the custody of the USBOP in prison for a total term of life, followed by consecutive minimum mandatory term of five years and a consecutive minute, minimum mandatory term of life. This term consists of terms on of life on counts one SS and two SS, 240 months, 240 months. So yeah, this is uh, this is what they what they got him on: a racketeering conspiracy, racketeering extortion conspiracy, money laundering, money laundering. Uh, and here it is, um, James Bolger. This is the official. Uh, judgment here guys so bring that's is the end of an era uh right there um so yeah uh christina final thoughts i mean 
It was interesting. I'm still stuck on a store. <laughs> like, how are you going to cause a problem? All right. Thank you for contributing nothing. <laughs> Stupid. Uh, yeah, guys. So hope you guys enjoyed that. Um, you know, th- th- this is, like I said, one of my favorite crime stories. Um, yes, obviously, Bolger was an informant, but... You know, you got to give the guy credit. He was very smart for him to be an informant and provide information on his competition while simultaneously still running his criminal activities and making money and doing all the things that he did. Hey, man, you got to you got to give your hats off to the guy. So anyway, with that said, guys, hope you guys enjoyed this video. Don't forget to like the video on your way out. I'll catch y'all on the next episode of Fed It, where we react to criminal documentaries and we also could react to, um, you know, contemporary cases going on. So uh, other than that, man, subscribe to the channel, like the video. Peace. I was a special agent with Homeland Security Investigations, okay, guys? HSI. The cases that I did mostly were human smuggling and drug trafficking. No one else has these documents, by the way. Here's what FedEx covers. Dr. Lafredo confirmed lacerations due to stepping on...